Bienvenidos. That's California for welcome to the March 7th edition of National Review's Radio Free California podcast. I'm Will Swain, president of the California Policy Center. You can find my colleagues and me at CaliforniaPolicyCenter.org. You can find my friend and co-host David Bonson right here. He's an economist, an author, the host of the Capital Record podcast, and the founder of the eponymous investment firm, the Bonson Group, and so much more. Hello, David. Hello, Will. How are you, my friend? Doing well. Hey, I um, I always hey, enjoy. You, know, you just mentioned I'm the host of Capital Record, which you have been a guest on before. Yes. And um, I don't really plug the podcast much on this podcast because people that listen to Radio Free are fans of you, not of me. But uh, you are the draw, and I am the obnoxious <laughs> opening act. But may I put a plug in for the last episode of Capital Record that just went up. I think it was Thursday, March the 2nd, and it features my friend Renee Ananow, and it's got a really big buzz, and Renee is one of the top macro strategists on Wall Street who's uh, a huge resource to many, many hedge funds. He is, like me, a diehard Calvinist Christian. He is a genius, unlike me, and I'm telling you, he and I went deep into Ukraine, Russia, China the intersection of geopolitics and markets. I loved it. I didn't know how the audience was respond, but it's got a great response. And so I just thought I'd mention to Radio Free California listeners that that particular episode of Capital Record, it's the deep end of the pool, but we've gotten a big buzz on it. So I just wanted to throw it out there. Oh, I'm glad you did. Um, I was going to give you a plug for your Dividend Cafe, which I always enjoy because it, um, you know, it's hard to write for most people, the way they speak, and in your case, writing the way you speak is a very good thing. So if I can, I'll just read this one one bullet point that almost had me snort coffee out of my nose. Not a rare occurrence on this podcast. You wrote, uh, Senator Josh Hawley has reintroduced legislation that would ban stock trading amongst executive branch officials. The legislation, which I expect will be passed, will mostly benefit the executive branch officials it targets. They don't seem to have the basic common sense and decency to know how they look when they do this kind of thing and apparently need a law to reinforce obvious right and wrong. Well played. Hey, um, let's talk about the fact that uh, Ron DeSantis has been in California. I'm sure just about everybody saw the stories. And I, I was intrigued by the reporting of his tour, Ron DeSantis's tour here in California, as I was by the things that uh, DeSantis said, which sounded pretty, you know, boilerplate. He's offering Florida as the model for the rest of the United States, and he has good reason to be proud of what he's accomplished there. Um, I, I do want to, you know, first I'll ask you, Did you have you paid much attention to uh, Ron's uh, appearance here in the Golden State? Yeah, and because of uh, a kind of significant thing I had in New York on Monday, March the 6th, his big event on Sunday, March the 5th, I was unable to attend. I was supposed to actually spend a little time with the governor privately. And I'm, I, I think I've told you I'm involved with a number of things with their group on economic advice. And, and I'm flattered for that. But more than importantly, I think it's important. You know, I want a certain perspective and worldview to be uh, disseminated amongst those who have potentially, well, already serious and potentially more serious positions of power. But as far as this event, I was unable to attend in person, yet uh, have a significant of pipeline, you know, of word on, on different things and also just media reports on how it's all perceived. 
He's a fundraising behemoth. His ability to go down on a per event basis and, and grab checks is massive, but that's not just coincidental. And it's certainly not a matter of his charm or, or humor. It's a, it's because the people giving do believe and want to believe that he's presidential material. And, and so I think that that's important. You, you can't run for president and win without the, without the donor class. And uh, I think he, you know, is in a very good position there. Now, look, Will, there is a lot of talk that he doesn't give barn burner speeches. And that could matter. I do think all things being equal, that charisma is important with this role. Um, but there's also a part of me that thinks most people attracted to Ron, there's two different things going on. And, and I would add a third, which I think is more applicable to people like you and me. Number one is they do see him as a warrior on the right side of the culture war. So he's going to fight the right woke battles, culture battles, social battles, ESG, Disney, blah, blah, blah. Totally fair enough, totally true, and Ron's proven himself in that front and, and so forth. Number two is electability. Uh, for a lot of people uh, that probably have a few more brain cells between their ears than others, they don't want to lose another election in humiliating fashion as we have in 2018, 20, and 22 directly at the altar of Trump MAGA. Uh, so uh, culture war and electability. But then I want to add number three, which I wish mattered to more of my Republican friends. I don't think it does matter to as many of them as it should, but it matters to me and it matters to you. And it's competence. I don't think there's anything impressive about a high amount of piety. And by piety, I mean people that get appropriately pissed at the appropriate people. I hate CNN, make me president. I hate NBC, make me president. I hate Nancy Pelosi, make me president. I'm unimpressed by people who only have the right people to hate. I think technique and competence matters. And if that makes me, what's the newest thing? Paul Ryan-ish, establishment-ish, Mitch McConnell-ish. Well, then screw you, okay? Because you can't get anything done if you're not competent and if you don't have technique. And Ron DeSantis has figured out how to get things done in the state of Florida, which is a tough state to govern. It's big. It's important. And this idea that it is a mark against him, that he builds coalitions, that he's strategic, that he's thoughtful, he's Ivy League, you know, whatever. I, I, I just, I like what the governor's doing and the way he's doing it in a lot of places. I'm not going to agree with him on everything, but um, that's my take on DeSantis's big successful fundraising trip to Southern California. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I was really intrigued by the reporting, which up and down the state pretty much focused on what does, and this is from the reporter's perspective, you know, much more appropriate to a commentary page, but uh, there's a lot of hand-wringing and I think deliberate mislabeling. So, for example, David, you'll remember you and I discussed, others have, I'm sure, the don't say gay bill, which is not a don't say gay bill. It said, let's not talk about sex and gender with kids who are third grade and younger. Um, that makes an appearance in virtually every story I saw, as does his battle with Disneyland um, and gun laws. So it's almost written from the perspective of, hey, Californians, here's what you're going to want to remember about this guy before we tell you anything he said of, of substance. Um, uh, Gavin Newsom got uh, 
uh, he got the last word in the piece uh, in, uh, I think this is Sac B, yes, in the Sacramento B. Um, Newsom, who was out of state when DeSantis was here. Oh, and by the way, out of state when thousands and thousands and thousands of Californians are still stuck in the snow in the San Gabriel Mountains, in the San Bernardino Mountains. Um, Newsom, who flew back to California Sunday after a trip out of state, welcomed DeSantis to the real freedom state. California residents are safer, healthier, and more prosperous than those unfortunate enough to have you as their governor. Now, the reporter just quotes that and lets it go unchecked. Whereas if DeSantis says anything, there's a lot of fact-checking and kind of um, hair-splitting, I think. Um, And then uh, the governor predicts that a face-off with Trump will go badly for DeSantis. He says, by the way, you're going to get smoked by Trump. I think Newsom hopes that's the case uh, more than anything else. But um, speaking of uh, Newsom and speeches and assembling, Newsom is not going to do a state of the state this year, at least not in a public setting where he reads it. And there could be myriad reasons for this. He will, in fact, uh, the, the California Constitution requires the governor to provide an annual state of the state to the legislature. So Newsom's just going to write his and send it over. Um Given that these people are trying to read thousands and thousands of crazy bills and their education is probably less than formidable, many of them won't understand how to read that letter. Yes, yes, I just ridiculed them for their lack of learning. But um, instead, he says, uh, Newsom does, that he will go on a tour of the state. Uh, You know, I would call it the reintroduction tour. But it's really being led by local state lawmakers so that wherever he goes, he's going to be led by the hand by an advanced team that will only show him what he really wants to promote. Um, Here's Anthony Rendon, the assembly speaker from Lakewood. He says, it's great. It's exciting. This is an opportunity for him to come to a bunch of districts and see all the good things we've been doing for the state. Um, It's and then here's Tony Atkins, the Senate uh, pro tem. Uh, She says, uh, it's always interesting to watch the governor find new ways to share his ideas and goals with Californians. This is a good way for his perspective. I'm not sure what she's saying here. Good way for his perspective about how our state is doing to reach even more people. Okay, now I get it. Um, So Democrats largely happy. Republicans don't care. Um, It is all performance. David, any any problem with a governor not doing a big public uh, state of the union that most people won't be able to see? And, and, and him not doing one? Right. I, I mean, look, you know that I don't even like the State of the Union that the president does. I've all I've really been convinced by Charlie Cook on this that um, the pomp and circumstance of those things is not really my cup of tea as a classical liberal who desires a more humble view of the presidency. And I certainly feel the same about the governor. So I don't care much about a big, fancy speech. I'd prefer that they do less, therefore talk less, and therefore have less, uh, you know, big big events. Now, with that said, the politics of this whole thing, the trolling of uh, DeSantis and saying things like, ha-ha, Trump's going to smoke you, this is where I'm so upset that our side on the right has been so defensive and supportive of um, – Donald Trump's behavior and antics because I want to go criticize um, uh, Newsom for being so childish, but this is just the game now. You know, you're allowed to troll. You're allowed to, you know, talk trash and he's going to smoke you and blah, blah, blah. 
um, saying the things on as a matter of record that Florida has been a less safe state than California is preposterous. But it, once again, politicians lie about the record and, and say the subjective parts objectively all the time. So, you know, the voters afford to disagree with Governor Newsom about the state of their state. And clearly a lot of uh, voters in California disagree with you and me about the state of our state. So what are you going to do? Uh, Newsom knows what he's going to do the same day that DeSantis is out uh, speaking around the state. Uh, Gavin Newsom comes out. Here's a headline. And uh, well, let's just read you the headline here. Uh, Newsom slams Walgreens, says California will cease doing business with the company. At issue is the fact that the uh, company has agreed to abide by state laws in 20 states that prohibit the distribution of morning after pills, abortifacients. And, um, you know, it seems to me that violating state law or encouraging others to do so is highly problematic. Um, and certainly in a state like ours where we pass laws and then allow certain groups of people to flout them or rescind laws because they might have a disproportionate outcome on a group that we have made our kind of social cause, um, that going after Walgreens is a great issue. If I'm Ron DeSantis, I just want to point out that this is a governor who already, as a governor of California, is doing his level best to leverage California's authority, its power by virtue of the size of its economy and the state itself, is using his power as governor to try to not just bully pulpit, but actually bully um major corporations. Um, and it also occurs to me, you and I have talked about this an awful lot. It'll come as no shock to uh, frequent listeners of the show that uh, Newsom's former hometown of San Francisco is doing its level best to absolutely shut down Walgreens anyway and CVS and every other pharmacy by uh, failing to prosecute people who walk into these stores and, and just steal everything in sight. Uh, I, th I think the last thing I read a couple of days ago was that Walgreens has closed 12 retail locations in San Francisco, 12. So Newsom doesn't have to worry. What he says he's going to do is just simply end the state's business with this company. Um, they might have a lawsuit available to them, I think, that this is a purely political decision the governor's making, not based on the virtue of their ability to deliver what Californians need and want, but the governor making a political decision about how other states should operate. That's, that strikes me as a little bizarre. What do you think, David? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a problem, though, with the logic of like saying, okay, well, we're just going to keep letting the the shoplifting and the homelessness and the crime take down Walgreens because they're uh, not going to serve these uh, abortion pills um, The because CVS is suffering from the same crime and shoplifting and homelessness mm -hmm. and economic and behavioral conditions, and yet they are. Uh, on the governor's side of um, uh, abortive pills. And so what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. He's going to take down both the um, ones following decency and, and, and legal order around abortive pills and the ones who aren't with the same bad policies. So he's going to have to want to figure that out. If only you could be more selective in your woke policies on shoplifting it would really help get your that policy aligned with the abortion issue which is of course what every governor is supposed to do is figure out what laws he's going to enforce and which laws he's not
We have a lot of smart listeners, including a lot of smart lawyers, and I'd love to know what any of them, among our listeners, I mean, I, I, I would love for any of them to let us know, you know, whether the governor really has the authority for any reason whatsoever just to issue an executive order about who can and cannot prescribe medication in the state of California based on something they might do in another state. That just, I don't know, it strikes me as very bizarre. Um, well, David, listen, it's discriminatory, and um, he's encouraging them to break the law. Yes. They're saying we're going to uphold the law in certain states. And he's saying, if you do that, we're going to ban doing business with you. So um, you're, you're right. It does invite some further legal scrutiny. I'd love to hear it. Let's see if I can find this. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, well, okay. So we've got loads of polls out in the last week or so, David. I'm just going to run through the headlines. They all seem to say something very interesting. Uh, a couple of them note that Newsom is very popular, not quite as popular as he was during the recall election, down just a little bit, but still quite popular in California. Um, the most interesting one from Quinnipiac, uh, which is a conservative polling group uh, out of, I think it's Wisconsin. Is that right, David? Wisconsin, maybe? Quinnipiac? Yeah, that is correct. And uh, in that one, buried in the story is voters say 70 to 22 percent they do not want to see Governor Gavin Newsom run for president in 2024. Uh, even among Democrats, 54 percent said they don't want to see Newsom run for president. Well, this is the one I talked about last week that, that then oh, I um, was asked to comment on on Fox Business. And I shared my belief that it's a little bit uh, tricky because the way they asked it, you don't know if people are saying we don't want you as president because we don't like you or we don't want you as president because we do like you and want you to be our governor. And, and you know, there, there was a poll that had a lot of Floridians, you know, that were saying we didn't want DeSantis as president because they want him as governor, right? So I could see it being read each way. Mm -hmm. But then the further ingredients of that poll, which again, we, we had talked about last week, it, so it is sorry. tricky because it does lean to a lot of dissatisfaction with his performance. And so the point I may I would make is, I don't doubt that if you phrase the question, not, will you vote for Ron DeSantis, or excuse me, will you vote for Gavin Newsom or Larry Elder? Or will you vote for Gavin Newsom or a Republican? If you phrase the question of, are you happy with homelessness? the state of how they're dealing with homelessness, I think that that question about the issue gives a lot more negative answers. But I think if you ask it in the context of anything electoral, or if you don't ask it at all and just let people go vote, I'm sorry, Republicans, but it's not true. They're not looking to remove this guy, period. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, interestingly, on the economy, I'll just tick through a couple of these items. On the economy, on the Quinnipiac poll again, 40% of California voters describe the state's economy as either excellent or good. That's 40%. 59%, almost 60% describe it as either not so good or poor. Um, this is way down from their last poll in 2019 uh, when the voters were more optimistic. Uh, living in California, uh, I love this one. If given the financial means to do so, 43% of voters said they would leave California. 55% uh, said they would not. Uh, most Californians, I, I don't know where they got this question, but it does make sense that with the progressive progressive milieu that uh, it's a good question to ask. Nearly two-thirds of voters, 64% oppose California allowing citizens to vote while they're serving felony time in prison. Um, 
And then vast major not a huge surprise on guns, vast majority of Californians support stricter gun laws. Um, and then uh, in the in the U.S. Senate race, it looks like a almost a dead heat uh, between Schiff, Adam Schiff, and Katie Porter. That's L.A. versus Orange County. Barbara Lee is in a distant third. Um, they don't have Rokana in here for reasons I'm not sure about, but uh, Barbara Lee is at just 18 percent, so just about half of what the other two have got. Um, and similar polls, I'll just pop in the show notes. People can look at them themselves. Uh, poll out from Berkeley Institute of Government Studies. Uh, theirs shows that uh, Kevin McCarthy fares the poorest in the rankings of all California high-profile politicians. Gavin Newsom remains California's most popular official. Um, buried in the study was something interesting, and that is that uh, voters support um, one of Newsom's more contentious proposals to reduce the deficit. I'll just read this to you, David. One of governors, one of the governor's proposals to, is to reduce next year's budget deficit. Um, is to scale back funding previously budgeted for electric vehicles and climate change. So in other words, the governor is saying, you know what, Uh, balancing the budget, more important than uh, climate change, and 62% of voters favor that proposal, which I I found interesting, given, you know, all of Newsom's talk about climate change and how he's the leader, that um, among the very first things he'll cut is a climate change initiative that is, you know, as we've discussed it here, that is a zero out cars by 20, uh, gas fueled cars by 2035. Um, and then the, the last poll is from the Public Policy Institute of California. That's Mark Baldessari's group. And um, again, they, they, the only thing they show that's different from the other polls seems to be that economy is number one for voters. Con- voters are concerned about jobs and inflation according to PPIC. And they're a very good, I think, very reliable, generally, a polling group. Mark Baldessari, I used to know him at the University of California, Irvine. Good guy. A couple of headlines. Most Californians are expecting bad times for the state economy in the next year. That's 66%. And uh, what was the other one that I wanted here? Perceptions about the nation are gloomier than views about the state. I would love to know more about that. Just about, um, I think, real Partisanship is an anxiety in the election coming up at the national level. Um, 70%, 70% of all those surveyed in the PPIC polls say homelessness is a big problem in the state of California. Um, okay, so uh, David, let's move on to a cut, just a little bit of news from around the state. I want to ask your opinion on a couple of things. Uh, have you been following the story up in Shasta County, David? That's where Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, uh, has apparently intervened to help Shasta County officials decouple themselves from Dominion voting machines. Um, it's weird that we have to talk about this at all, given now what we have, what what has been revealed in the Dominion uh, lawsuit against Fox. Uh, it's a defamation suit for I don't know one and a half billion, one point seven billion dollars, something like that. A lot of money, and um, but some of the folks who haven't gotten the message about the the the, the sort of BS argument about Dominion voting machines are still uh, have become more powerful in Shasta County in the far north of the state. And um, Mike Lindell has stepped in to tell them, look, if you get rid of the Dominion voting machines, I will help you fund whatever alternative or some reasonable alternative that you find. Uh, One of the guys is talking about actual hand counting of votes. Um, and when you when you know what's really going on in Shasta County, a lot of this is driven by pandemic era lockdowns. Um, a lot of frustration around mail-in ballots 
in Shasta County and the fact that, you know, many people regard that as a lax security regime, just mailing out to every voter in California a mail-in ballot, um, that that's, that's a big part of what's driving the anxiety about even electronic voting. And I, I think it would be the same whether it was Dominion or somebody else. But um, most of the major media have covered the Shasta County event as just more evidence of Trump in, a, in Shasta County. Any thoughts about that, David? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, it's all embarrassing uh, because this is coming to California. I mean, I assume any county who is canceling an agreement with Dominion for no good reason at all will still have replace it with something else that faithfully captures votes. But I do think the pretext to it is uh, is mortifying, mortifying. Yeah, it's fascinating that down in Kern County, uh, or, you know, down from Shasta to the east at the bottom of the Central Valley, uh, in Kern County, a similar bid uh, put to the County Board of Supervisors lost narrowly, but it lost. Um, and so I, I, I just, you know, I, I find it sort of amusing and a, quite a bit frustrating like you, David. Uh, over in Oakland, uh, the DA, Pamela Price, has uh, vowed to shorten prison sentences and to lean into probation. Her anxiety is that she wants to, um, she sees sentencing enhancements and allegations as an effort to um, as a problem that really sort of exacerbates racial disparities. In other words, if you're caught with a gun in the course of pulling a crime, DAs can prosecute you with a sentence enhancement for the use of the gun. Uh, her argument is that that disparately affects uh, minority people and especially black people and therefore is clearly racist. So she wants to get rid of that. The fascinating thing about the story is that in her own office, there are DAs who are really anxious about that and say that this will rob them of the leverage they have in dealing with, with really tough criminals. They won't be able to threaten them with an enhancement and then reduce the enhancement in order to get a plea bargain. So, um, you know, this is one of those places where Oakland has a surge in crime and especially violent crime and where Democrats will tell you that the, the problem in the world uh, of crime is guns, that there's too many guns. Guns are terrible. But the key enhancement in these crimes that the DA now wants to eliminate is the use of a gun. So apparently guns are really terrible unless they're in the hands of a criminal, in which case we should just overlook that fact and just charge them on the lesser crime and give them probation. <laughs> so, uh, Will, why don't you share your opinion on this? I think it's pretty clear. I, um, I, my opinion is that anytime um, the left wants to excoriate gun laws, they, they go all the way to the Second Amendment, talk about how preposterous it is. They create massive amounts of gun regulation. It's no surprise. California has the greatest number of gun regulations, and yet we still have mass shootings. But when the when the shooters turn out to be in any kind of crime, when they turn out to be black or Latino or something like that, we have people like this DA in Oakland, uh, Pamela Price, who's ready to declare any kind of racial outcome in enhanced sentencing or sentencing about around guns. That's suddenly a problem. So I don't really believe that they think guns are a problem. I, if, they, if they did, I believe they would want to do everything they could to put people who misuse guns behind bars. But that just doesn't seem to be the case here. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. There's uh, a lot just of cross bad bills you sent this week. Pardon? There's a lot of bad bills you sent this week. Yeah, uh, I had a lot of fun with bad bills. Um, 
Let's let's talk. One of my stories that I wanted to get to last week, David, was just a wonderful piece. Um, mostly, I think, very well done in the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, and they followed the story of a 13-year-old Ukrainian refugee, a 13-year-old girl who comes to San Francisco, and she says to the reporter, I thought it was going to be better because of San Francisco, but after two days, I saw everything going on at the school. Um, Students interrupted classes, jumped on desks, cursed the teachers. At first, the reporter says, Yana wondered what was going on, but then nothing happened to the students. They were not disciplined or prevented from repeat behavior. And after one week, the girl says, I understood this is normal in an American school. Uh, there follows an extensive section, perhaps half of the article, which is really just talking about how difficult it is for the schools to operate safely and to function well, because they just don't have enough money. Um, then they come back to Yana, and I, I really do think that it, it's just a fascinating story to read because it's, well, the headline kind of tells you the story. She fled the war in Ukraine, but failed to find a safe haven in a San Francisco middle school. Uh, they're comparing a middle school in San Francisco to the hell of Ukraine under r Russian attack. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty provocative headline. The, the details are outstanding, uh, notwithstanding the, uh, the claim that all these schools need is just much more tax money, then they'd all be okay. And I, I point this out even this week. The story's over a week old now because I, I doubt that school in San Francisco has become any better, but also because Nancy Skinner has announced a new bill to eliminate willful defiance suspensions. So remember, David, the story is kids jumping up on desks, disrupting class, getting to fights, bullying other kids. This girl will not go into the restroom at her school. It's just a terrifying place for her to be because it's so violent. Um, but here's Nancy Skinner. She's got a new bill, Senate Bill 274, which would... Um, it would ban willful uh, defiance suspensions. Willful defiance is just when a kid says, no, I won't listen to you, and no, I won't shut up, and no, I won't do my work. No, 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 no. And the teacher now has, if Skinner succeeds, disruptive students, teachers with disruptive students will have no recourse. They will not be able to discipline them in any way. Uh, Nancy Skinner's, I think, childlike uh, observation of this problem is, SB 274 is based on a simple premise, students belong in school. Um, this puts the needs of students first. Instead of kicking them out of school, we owe it to students to figure out what's causing them to act out and help them fix it. This reminds me of Clockwork Orange, the William Burroughs novel, you know, where we just, we really just, we, we fail to understand the complexity of the kid's behavior. But what about the other kids? What about the majority of kids who are actually, you know, really trying to learn, like this kid from Ukraine? I was a, a student teacher for a brief time when I was a graduate student at a local high school. And out of 35 kids, I would bet, you know, three to five of them were really attentive and the rest were distracted by three to five really terrible students who just disrupted the class the whole time. And even in that class at that time, we're going now back to the 80s, I wasn't allowed to send anybody to the principal's office, just couldn't do it because uh, I was a student teacher. So I just had to kind of deal with it. And no learning was done. Uh, it was just impossible. So good old Nancy Skinner. She knows the answer to the problem that young Yana, the Ukrainian refugee, faces in San Francisco school. The problem is any kind of classroom discipline, that we, we shouldn't have classroom discipline. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a really good approach. And I'd like to apply that at scale. Just like uh, uh, totally eliminate all such thing. And then once we're done eliminating discipline from the classrooms, 
which will inevitably lead to healthier and safer schools, I'd like to eliminate all discipline um, at people's homes. Yes, great idea. And in their cities, their neighborhoods, absolutely. Well, I mean, those things, you know, they've been doing a good job at. They've already really gotten rid of a lot of the mandatory prison sentences or getting police involved at shoplifting and eliminating even violent crime in matters of systemic injustice. I think the schools are a great place to start. And then um, from there, I think you want to move to the homes where I'm telling you, I read all the time that there's still parents that have rules for their kids. That's shocking. And I think if we can kind of get the state involved with that, I wouldn't mind some committees. I wouldn't mind a number of different uh, oversight boards. Um, if you can eliminate any kind of oversight at every level of society, I think I know enough about human nature to know that it will it will accrue to a really positive result. Yeah, I'm just I'm so struck by the irony here that you know, as is typical with these kinds of analyses, what's the old saying that for every I think it was H.L. Uh, Mencken for every complex problem there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. Um, you know, her framing of the problem is that we need to put the needs, we have to put the needs of students first. Instead of kicking them out of school, we owe it to them to figure out what's causing them to act out and help them fix it. I got that. But what about the kids who remain trapped in this class with kids who are acting out? The vast majority of kids, likely. Um, what about them and putting their needs first? And, um, and I also do disagree with the fundamental premise that like the biggest burden we have is to find out why people are doing things. I don't agree. I think that that's on the list. I don't know. I'd be curious to know if there's some stuff we're missing in, in that's causative. But the first thing you have to do is deal with what people are doing, regardless of why. And and that's the uh, a major difference between the left and the right. That um, you know, I've talked before about the impact that Thomas Sowell's conflict division. Uh, work um, had on me. I believe he wrote it in 1987, and I think it's a, a masterpiece. But I don't think that when we discuss this sort of organization of society, I don't agree that we're in need of people like Skinner to tell us why different things are happening. I think that when you have, um, uh, you know, school teachers in a classroom uh, that there is a sort of if this, then that expectation. If you are disobeying a certain way, then there will be this response. And you know who, who had written a book of, uh, or an essay, an academic essay, that I think you and I discussed on the podcast against this idea of consequences to bad activity? It was uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the famous right. crypto scammer's... Uh, allegedly, uh, his mother, the law professor at none other than Stanford, who I think it was roughly about 10 years ago now, penned a piece saying maybe we've been getting this whole thing wrong, thinking that we have to have consequences for bad action. And so there has been a fundamental disagreement between the view of human nature that guys like Dewey had and and I think that the the view of human nature that the founding fathers had and that I think is the prevalent view out of a more American version of revolution versus French version of revolution ideas do have consequences the idea that uh, human nature starts off good and gets corrupted by injustice 
versus starts off bad because of sinful nature and has to be um, informed through moral education and moral development through things like uh, 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 home, school, church, etc. These are profound conflicts of vision for social organization, for social order, for society at large. This public school system is driven by a very different vision of society. And it's one of the reasons why guys like you and I have to fight for school choice because some people have a vision of society that thinks you should punish bad behavior in a classroom. And if that's your vision for a school system you want your children in, that whether that be a charter school, a homeschool, a religious school, a private school, uh, that option ought to be on the table for families. And so school choice is actually very much tied into this very subject of the philosophy of human nature. Yeah, there's a, uh, it's fresh in my mind because I watched it last night. Chris Rock's new uh, stand-up. Have you seen it, David? No, Outrage, I watched I it so bad. I read a big article on it. Um, but I haven't seen it, and so please don't spoil yet, but I'm really excited to see it, and I hear he goes after Will Smith fierce. Uh, yeah. It's, like I hear he is, slaps him upside the head, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, indeed. Well, there, there's there's a moment in there where he's talking about, you know, have the problem of raising children in extraordinary wealth. Uh, you know, he, he says, jokingly, he identifies as poor, Um and he's, you know, one of the things that he's had a problem with, with raising his two daughters and in incredible wealth is making sure that they can also suffer the consequences of bad behavior. And I won't ruin the joke, but uh, that's in there. Hey, you know who also knows how, uh, who knows the answer to the failure of California's public schools, David? That's uh, our friend and neighbor, State Senator Josh Newman of Fullerton. He has introduced a gender neutral bathroom bill uh, for California schools. Um, if passed, it would become the first of its kind in the nation. Uh, his, his, his evidence of this or his, his argument for this is it's hard enough to be questioning your gender or sexuality at that age, but to not be able to use the bathroom without some combination of anxiety, stigma, shame, and bullying, that's just a terrible place to put kids. Well, I would say that's the general state of certainly San Francisco schools, uh, that they are places that are not and By safe. the way, I'm sorry, Will, I don't want to interrupt you, but didn't this Josh Newman, he was a Republican that we excommunicated yes. over his gas tax? That's right. Yeah. So that's interesting. He claims, no, 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 I'm a good Republican. You guys are excommunicating me because I have one fiscal difference with you. And guess what? He's now out putting legislation to put a, a biologically preposterous bathroom in every school in the state. This, let me just tell you something. This has pissed me off now. <laughs> this idea about, well, I'm a, a economic liberal, but a social conservative, or I'm a social liberal, but an economic conservative. They're never, ever separate ever at the end of the day, these people, if you scratch deep enough, always show you that they will go the other way. So he starts off by saying, yeah, yeah, I'm really with you guys, but I'm one, I, I'm just against you on this gas tax. And then lo and behold, he's now a former Republican mandating gender neutral restrooms. Dear Lord, these people have no principles at all. And though this has not been written about yet, there's a gender-neutral bathroom at a uh, local high school here in Tustin in Orange County, and uh, they just found uh, a number of cameras that had been placed there by a teacher. 
um, who you know could walk into it because he's a guy and it's gender neutral, knowing that girls, young girls, would soon use it, and it's it's it pains me even to think about why someone would want to watch uh, young children um, do their business, but uh, there's that guy in a gender neutral bathroom, so there is stigma and anxiety in the world, Josh Newman. It just happens when you put a lot of kids together, there's going to be anxiety and stigma and shame and bullying. The question is, what are the teachers empowered to actually do about it? Nancy Skinner says, not much. Uh, Josh Newman says, let's let's at least eradicate it from the problem of going to the bathroom. I'm sorry and, for being so bothered by this. No, I, I, I get it. And I think it's a really fair point because we do have this problem in California where Republicans kind of go off off the reservation in ways that they argue are just on this issue or that one. I'm thinking of another guy you and I both know who just suddenly sort of slid to the left and started supporting government unions and soon after was just flouting um, conservative thinking on virtually everything, voted for AB5, um, and were shocked when people took offense at this. Um, so, you know, it, there really is a slippery slope that we have to be attentive to. Hey, uh, one last quick story about education, as long as we're here. I just want to talk about Stanford's uh, class of 2026 doesn't look like America. This is from Nate Hockman at National Review. Uh, he points out that the Stanford University class of 2026 has a disproportionately small number of white kids. He says here, uh, while whites make up more than 50% of the nation's adolescent population, they were only 22% of Stanford's class of 2026. Um, he says a Twitter user was one of the first to flag this disparity, uh, adding, quote, now I'm speculating, but admitted white men are likely connected. The rural math genius has no chance. Um, the more important thing is that progressives have jumped on this argument that, uh, you know, that whites are underrepresented at Stanford's class of 2026 by saying that, oh, well, you conservatives who are pointing to this clearly are upset by merit. Here's uh, Elizabeth Spires, a progressive journalist that Nate Hockman uh, quotes in his article. She writes, the refusal to even consider the possibility that women and minorities are outperforming white male applicants here is unsurprising. But that's not what they're doing. That's not what they're saying at all. Nate is saying right here, and I'll read because I think it's, it's worth reading. We've relegated Ibrahim X. Kendi's all disparities are proof of discrimination to the dustbin of history where it belongs. Overrepresentation of one group, underrepresentation of another and a particular institution is clearly no longer proof in and of itself as systemic bias. I look forward to Spears, that's the progressive journalist, extending that logic to the nation's prison system, policing, crime, income inequality, marriage rates, Fortune 500 C-suites and so-called wage gap and heavily male-dominated careers in STEM. Nate Hockman, your hero of the of the, uh, the, the, the the journalists out here. Uh, totally appreciate this uh, this article. Great piece. Um, yeah, he's done some great stuff, by the way. I've really enjoyed a lot of his writing. Not, not you know, some stuff is, is, I'm a little, uh, some stuff I'm not 100% aligned with, but some of his stuff is just so good. Big fan. Well, I like to say that I can't persuade my wife uh, about uh, the same restaurant choices on any typical day, so I'm not shocked when I don't agree on everything public policy-wise. Nate Hockman is just, he's the real deal. Um, okay, so we were talking about guns and violent crime and the Oakland DA's deep desire to make sure that gun enhancements aren't part of our criminal uh, justice system. Um, there's a new bill in the 
in, in the assembly, 328, put forward by Assemblyman Bill Asaley. Uh, he's a Republican from Riverside. And this would prohibit judges from doing exactly what the Oakland DA wants us to do. It prohibits judges from dismissing firearms-related sentencing enhancements, meaning additional punishment for having or using a firearm in the commission of the crime. Guess who opposes it? Almost everybody on the left. The ACLU argues the bill removes The ACLU opposes it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So guns are terrible, the ACLU and all the progressives will tell you. Guns are awful. Um, unless we are using guns in considering sentencing, then then guns are fine, and we should ignore them completely. Uh, the ACLU says AB three two eight is unnecessary and has no public safety benefit. So can you imagine locking somebody up for an additional say year, two, or five years for carrying a weapon during the commission of a crime has no public safety benefit. This this defies the logic, but we'll continue. ACLU goes on, although people will serve longer prison sentences, this will not increase deterrence nor meaningfully prevent crime by incapacitation. Instead, they argue, data show that enhancements increase racial disparities and drive over-incarceration. So they assert that there is no public safety benefit from this, a, a lie that is just absolutely positively falsified in the 1990s after we had three strikes and we started we started locking up people who had at least three criminal felonies three felonies um and we know that when you lock up people who commit violent crimes violent crime rates go down that is absolutely a fact and that's what is saley the uh, republican from riverside in the state assembly says in a tweet he wrote crime rates plummet when we remove the most violent criminals for society if you want to talk about racism how about we talk about the victims the majority of violent crime victims are minorities. So once again, just as Nancy Skinner fails to see the needs of all students or a majority of students in order to determine the causes of um, outrageous classroom behavior among a few, um, our guy Asaley, God, God love this guy, is saying that you know we have to pay attention to the fact that victims of violent crime are also often minorities, that we are doing this to protect people. Um, just an awesome story. Um, this is l- unlikely. This bill is unlikely to get out of a subcommittee. Um, I think it's on the subcommittee on public safety. Uh, so, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a regular committee. Not likely to make it out of, of it. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that why, is the subject because it's dominated by Democrats and Democrats think the gun enhancements are racist. No, but, but you're saying that they would rather kill it a committee than let it go forward and, and kill yes. it as a bill. That's right. Huh. Yeah, it has to make it out of, out of the committee first. And if it doesn't, then nobody has to consider it more broadly. Um, so, you know, kudos to this guy. He really is trying to do something, I think, really remarkable and just sort of restoring some of the sanity and logic of the data. Democrats who are our friends, maybe listening to this show, I, I just want you to know, if you follow the science, locking up people who commit violent crimes, especially crimes with guns, makes people including minority communities, safer. But what happened um, to their anti-gun politics? It, it just evaporates on first contact with racial disparity. So that's what they should say, is we are vehemently opposed to the Second Amendment and the use of a gun when it's a crazy white guy doing it. Right. Yes. That should be their policy. That's right. That's, that is what it is. Amendment. It depends on the race of the person. That's right. That's what they should say it. Yeah. Okay. So, David, there's two really. Long you know, Will, that in theory, 
You take away Second Amendment, you take away racial politics. In theory, I'm not sure that I believe in a different sentence for use of a gun versus not in the sense of I would base it on the intent of the crime. So like I would have a sentence for attempted murder and then that would be a strict sentence and no one would like it in Dave land and it would be very deterrent, you know, because I'm, I'm super against attempted murder. But in theory, I don't, I don't need to know what weapon was used to attempt to murder someone. I just kind of want people to stop trying to murder people, right? Yeah, right. So if someone came and said, hey, good news, man. That attempted murder was not with a gun. I'd be like, oh, good. Thank God. What was Thank it? Goodness. The machete. Yeah. I'd be like, okay, well, that's, that's what we're going for. Um, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, similar to the hate crime issue. Like, right. You're trying to kill someone. I'll, I'll give you X number of years or a certain penalty or whatever it's going to be prosecutorial guidelines. I'm not sure that I think that the weapon involved should matter, but that has nothing to do with race. It just simply has to do with um, leveling the playing field. Now, the point here is obvious that more violent crime is going to tend to be more repeated and has to have a stricter penalty, has to have minimum guideline. The problem here is that not that we're trying to have too strict of a weapon for a gun versus a knife. It's that we don't have a strict enough punishment for either. That's the real problem, which is why you need a bill like this. Um, but the notion that that would be racialist in some capacity is absurd. David, I'm going to hold off on the uh, last two stories. They are expansive um, takedowns of uh, some important issues, and we can consider them another time. Do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we head out? Uh, you know what? You've covered a lot of ground. You've done a great job. I love doing this podcast with you. Thank you for everything. That's what I want oh, to say. Oh, man. You listen to you. You're just floating up to heaven right now on clouds of puffy joy. That's all the time we have today. You can always find this podcast on the National Review website, but it would be easier for you and far better for us if you subscribe and rate and review the show. Hey, go in and look at that. We, we should spend some time, you and I, David, just reading the reviews. There are some really good ones in there. Uh, they're all good. Uh, including the ones that hate us. Um, so go in there and rate and review the show. That'll boost our profile and help others find us. You can email us your comments and story suggestions. Uh, you'll find our e email addresses and other fun details in the show notes. On behalf of my friend and co-host Dave Bonson, we give thanks as ever to session producers Lucas Klaus, Brian Tong, and Glenn Hall, and to all of our friends at National Review, especially National Review podcast producer Sarah Schutte. Thanks also to Metalachi. That's the LA-based mariachi metal band for our music. La Revolución continua in la semana próxima. Oh, 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 o